This episode is brought to you by DistroKid. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Two, three, four. Hey, everyone. Today's guest is singer-songwriter K.T. Tunstall from Edinburgh, Scotland. Together, we break down the writing, recording, and inspiration behind the hit single, Black Horse and the Cherry Tree, taken from her 2004 debut album, Eye to the Telescope. On first listen, one wouldn't necessarily think this is a blues song, but it's definitely rooted in the blues in its stripped-down approach. KT had been using a loop pedal while playing out live solo, and when going in to make the record, she really wanted the recording to still have that stripped-down feel, albeit with a full band. She credits producer Steve Osborne with helping her achieve just this. And the lyrics? Wow. Talk about left field. I had absolutely no idea what this song was about, and the trip she takes us on with that is super cool. KT mentioned that there are lines within the song that aren't necessarily referencing the lyrical subject matter, things from her past and such, that bled into the track's lyrics. And there are some amazing things going on percussively here that aren't your traditional way of creating sounds that I absolutely love. So for all this and a whole lot more, don't touch that dial. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. If you want to impress Scottish people, you do not say Edinburgh or Glasgow. You have to say <laughs> Edinburgh and Glasgow. <laughs> Glasgow and Edinburgh, exactly. And uh, yeah. do you ever play a venue called the Picture House? I remember it actually in Edinburgh. I've never played it myself, but it was a really, um, I'm not sure if it's, is it still there? It was always, it was always in danger of closing. It was one of those amazing venues that everybody loved that was always struggling against you know developers trying to take it over but a great venue yeah my band played there once and it, i just remember it being just one of those i don't know special gigs you yeah. know just such a great place with so much history and then of course we've done the o2 academies and, and all that stuff there but uh when i saw you were from edinburgh i'm like man the picture house such a great venue yeah and uh for the listeners your debut album eye to the telescope was released on the 13th of december 2004 and the song we're going to talk about today, Black Horse and the Cherry Tree, just took off from that record. And it's just such such a cool song. Well, thank you. It was a very cool story with that song, too, because the album was in the bag, as they say, and did not include that song. Do you know how many times I've heard that where it's like <laughs> the, the song that everyone gravitates to? People are like, we almost left that off the album. I feel like I heard that about Yellow with Coldplay. I don't know if that was that's correct information, but it seems like when the pressure is taken off an artist to have the singles for a record, 
they then go and write an absolute banger. And with this one, I'd made the record with Steve Osborne, amazing producer who worked with U2 and Doves and, and various different great bands, Placebo. And um, we'd done the record very DIY and very lo-fi. So it was really just a drummer and then me and Steve filling in the gaps and then hiring in a bass player here and there. But Steve was a bass player and I would do some keys and then we would get a keys person if we needed something a little bit better than I could do. But it was a, ver <laughs> a very small number of people in a very lo-fi space. And uh, but it really did end up a very rhythmic kind of garage band sounding record. It's insane when I went and looked at videos. I went and saw performances, especially the one on Later with Jules Holland. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, this was the day that changed my life, right? So the day went like this. Naz the rapper was due to appear on Later with Jules Holland, which if you aren't familiar, is the holy grail of music shows in the UK. Oh, yeah. um, and what he does is he'll have about five bands in the round and you'll have anyone from Brian Ferry to Van Morrison to, I mean, just, you know, the, I, there's been everyone and all stars on this show. Then he'll have like an indie band. He might have Future Islands or, you know, uh, Maggie Rogers or someone kind of in the, in that middle status of uh, success. And then he'll always have brand new people. And you basically go around in the circle and you play a song each. And so Naz the rapper was meant to be on the show. He pulled out 24 hours in advance. And for some reason, I got the call as an unknown singer songwriter to be the new uh, artist on the show. And this song was really written after I'd finished the record. And I realized I did not want to play solo with guitar, confessional, open mic style anymore. I needed to get that injection of rhythm into my music because to me, the rhythm felt just as important as the melody and the chord changes and the lyrics. And so my friend Mosh, who was a sound guy for a band that I was kind of uh, just moonlighting with and doing some singing with, had this Akai Headrush pedal in his bag. And at the end of rehearsal one day, he said, why don't you try this and let's mess about with it and see if you can get some rhythm going on it. And um, I'd seen people do guitar lines, I'd seen people do vocals, but I'd never seen anyone do both together. And the eureka moment for me was I'd never seen anyone bash the shit out of their guitar to get a, a beat. And so when I first tried that, it sounded terrible. And so we realized that we had to actually insert an EQ and start to really s manipulate the sound a bit, flatten it out, take all the middle out. That's the trick, by the way, if you want your acoustic to sound good through the loop pedals, just carve out your middle. Um, <laughs> and we got there and suddenly there I was being able to pretty much recreate most of the band sounds on a loop pedal by myself. And um, I think that, you know, the show was so impactful because first of all, many people hadn't seen a loop pedal being used. Um, and secondly, I think they were kind of surprised to see it being used by a girl. You know, it was the guitar pedals have just always, you know, been the, the world of boys uh, historically. And not so much now, thankfully, but, um, and, and I, I, you know, let's acknowledge those amazing female uh, rock guitarists who've come up and been the anomalies during that time. But I think it was sort of refreshing uh, for people to see this 
little girl on TV, like using a spaghetti junction pedal rig and, and <laughs> creating a band on her own. So, it, um, yeah, it really kind of fired me out of a cannon the next day. People went crazy for it. So is uh, the loop pedal the only thing you can multitask with or outside of music? Are you a multitasker as well? I would say I'm pretty much a multitasker across the board. And it's kind of, you know, it, it comes out of it comes out of need. It, and yes. I tend to I tend to adapt very quickly to learning something if I need it. <laughs> I'm not particularly good at applying myself and learning just from a from a point of view of interest and, and uh, diligence. It's much more if I need to do something, I'll get it. I'll get it learned very fast. Um, and so I play a bit of drums. I'm a, I, I started off as a keyboard player. I was a classical pianist for many years. Um, oh, cool. I had a cool beginning where uh, I was clearly like gravitating towards music at a very young age. And I start, I asked my parents for piano when I was four years old. And um, I, my music teacher not that long ago reminded me that I turned up for my grade one exam at, at when I was five, I think with my coloring book instead of my music, <laughs> which is pretty much like a report card for who I am for the rest of my life. Um, but yeah, I, I, I absolutely kind of slam dunked my first exam by just of memory, not, not needing the music. And I think that was really, that's really more along the lines of how I like to play and learn is just by ear rather than read. So I do read and I can read and I can write, but I, I never had any, sorry, humble, humble brag, but I, I had 12 years of piano lessons, but I never got lessons on piano or for singing. And there was something very liberating about that, but it was really good having that, having that piano basis for and, and theory understanding. And so I, I always sort of think of the piano as the mothership. It's a really, mm -hmm. really great instrument to learn first. I think it gives you um, it, it teaches you the language of music in a really clear way because you can see your hands in front of you do you know with the chord structures and everything i can only hack through a piano but i've written songs on it because it's so primitive yeah exactly and you, you you i think in terms of finding your way on a new instrument it is a it's a very i think it's a, a great instrument to start on because you can see what you're doing and you can see the notes i i still am very scrappy on guitar because you can't like turn around and look at your hand and see what you're playing you kind of just have to learn the places um and then i also took up classical flute so i'm a flautist and uh what else i don't play anything in the violin family you would never catch me managing any of that but that's kind of the only thing i couldn't really get a decent tune out of well that's that's awesome so what were some of your influences? Because this song in particular, just, it doesn't sound Scottish to me. Your, no. your accent, your accent doesn't come across. It sounds like some American singers. I want to yeah. see who you, who maybe your influences were and if I was kind of in, in the ballpark. Well, I'll tell you where the stealth Scottish influence comes in that, in that song, which is if you grew up in England the very bog standard beat that you hear is going to be a back beat. You know, it's all those great bands, Beatles, Kinks, even Rolling Stones, who are, you know, very, very uh, transatlantic sounding. But you would have a boot gat, boot gat, and you would, uh -huh. you would always have that is the standard go to beat of a song. And when it comes to Scotland and Ireland, we have such 
an intrinsic and powerful influx of Celtic music yes. in our cultures. And we grew up listening to it. So when I grew up in, in you know, elementary school, by, by, I don't know, mid-November, you weren't doing phys, phys ed anymore. You were doing Scottish country dance training. So <laughs> all the kids were taught traditional Scottish country dance in, in kind of uh, preparation for the Christmas party where we would have a Kaylee, which is just a total riot. It, it's basically like Viking dancing. It's just amazing, but there's all these kind of different dances and moves that you learn as a kid. And um, I hope they still do that in schools. I don't know if they do in Scotland, but, but all of these tunes are a four to the floor pulse. It's, it's always four to the floor beats. And so the traditional music of where I grew up is more likely to be a full four to the floor beat than it is to be a backbeat. So with Black Horse, it was a very natural thing for me to do this full-on four-to-the-floor pulse. That's yeah. probably more natural to me than a bar band beat, you know? Sure, And sure. so what was really interesting was that when I would, when I would take my songs to play with, a, with other musicians, they would usually defer to a backbeat and it would just suddenly sound flat and boring when I play, so I, I played solo a lot and I still play solo a lot because um, I'm able to craft. And of course, if I play with musicians now, then I'm just like, play the four at the floor, dude. <laughs> you can yeah. play the snare as much as you want, but let's go, let's go full on. But so that pulse, and then I got really into dance music when I was 14 or 15, um, like Left Field and DJ Shadow and Chemical Brothers. Which isn't much different from the, tr the traditional classics yeah. that you're talking about. You know, exactly. those dances that you were learning. Doom, yeah. doom, doom. That's your yeah, electronica beats. Yeah, exactly right. And, and, and the thing that was really fascinating to me was that it made me feel the same way. And on my third record, I was really, really going into that. Like, I called it nature techno. And I was like, how come left field makes me feel the same as Eddie Cochran? when it's, ah. you know, it, the, these just pulsing beats. Um, and I was so interested in the marriage of those two things and always have been with that rhythm being a very, a very kind of intrinsic part of my music. And so I didn't listen to music growing up. My parents didn't listen to music. My dad had like a, a, a enough kiss, a cassettes you could count on one hand. He had Tom Lehrer, who was like a Harvard mathematician turned Gilbert and Sullivan style satirist musician. Brilliant, brilliant guy, an amazing lyricist. Okay. Uh, he had a Billie Holiday cassette, which who I now love and at the time couldn't stand it because it sounded so weird to me. Uh, he had a Vangelis soundtrack of Chariots of Fire because they, <laughs> because they filmed it on the beach where I grew up in St. Andrews. And I have to say that Vangelis remained one of my greatest influences when it came to using electronics and synthesizers. I always go back to that, to his music. And um, what else did he have? Mozart and Beethoven. And that was kind of it. Um, and so I didn't really get into, and I, my friends weren't mad for listening to music either. I was much more into theater and performing. And it wasn't until I was kind of in my mid teens when my dad got a satellite dish 
because he wanted to watch rugby and cricket and I found the MTV. Yes. And then that just changed everything. And one of the first songs and videos I became obsessed with was Loser by Beck. Yo. I'd grown up, you know, as an 80s kid, which I, in my humble opinion was the best decade any human being could grow up in. It was so awesome. It was just pre-phones, but just post-computers so you could play Donkey Kong. <laughs> uh, but you'd have to wait half an hour for, for it to load. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it was a really, it was a wholesome decade to be a kid in and there was just the, you know, the most amazing movies and uh, and fantastic pop songs and pop singers, but I, I wasn't really aware of anything super cool at that time. I was into Adam, you know, I loved Adam Ant and Kim Wilde and um, George Michael and mm -hmm. Whitney Houston and Madonna, but really it wasn't till I got MTV and saw Loser by Beck. And I also loved that song, Fool's Gold by the Stone Roses and got very into Stone Roses mm -hmm. and just sort of discovered indie guys, basically. Well, again, the song, you know, if I was, and I know traditional Scottish music and this just, it has its own thing, but it doesn't sound yeah. like I would peg it for being, being Scottish. No, absolutely not. So the other major thing that happened was before, this is a little later on, you know, around the time of writing this song and making the first record, I got very into old blues. Uh. So my first, I think my first sort of love affair with a CD was Bone Machine by Tom Waits. And I was like, holy shit, this guy's white. I thought he was a black dude because mm -hmm. it sounded so bluesy. And so that was sort of really cool listening to someone borrow that strongly from blues. And I was like, oh, it's okay for me to sing that way because that feels like a natural way of singing to me, to sing in a blues style. And then I just really started to get into, you know, the classics like Howling Wolf and Sonny Boy Williamson and uh, Robert Johnson. So Robert Johnson, sure. I think, was... Um, listening to his stuff and the all the old Alan Lomax kind of really old recordings were, were what Steve Osborne and I were listening to a lot in the car as we drove to the studio. We loved this kind of ambient recording where you could hear the feet stomping and the hand clapping mm -hmm. and the background vocals and live mixing in the room by placing people at a distance from one mic. And that's the vibe I get from this track. That's kind of how we were recording too. It was very lo-fi and um, we were, you know, we were duct taping comforters on the wall and and so I really wanted to keep that that rawness to the record which I'm so proud of because I think that's probably why it still sounds fresh now and still gets played a lot is it, it still sounds pretty different from a lot of stuff that I hear just a ton of space and I think mm -hmm. Steve and I kind of really um committed to making a record that if you don't use dateable sounds, then it's not really dateable, you know? I guess you could you could be following a style that uh, that would really kind of put a flag in the sand of, of, of when you've recorded it. But um, 
blues is just that there that's the shoulders we stand on right well as far as far as american singers i had written down two and i don't know if you were yeah. a fan or not what i'm, I'm hearing what i'm hearing in here and especially with your rasp you got such a great raspy bluesy voice but i'm hearing melissa etheridge and bonnie Raitt. oh well that's thank you so much okay, okay. and um <laughs> i i actually didn't discover melissa's music until a bit later on and i've been extremely lucky in the last year or two to to play with her and um and perform at her amazing uh getaway concerts and she is um she is incredible I'm always cautious when I tell, you know, artists no, or guests, I, I, so I don't want, it, it's not a ripoff of these artists at all, it, but just, no. there's an influence I heard and, and, uh, I'm glad you said it was, I, I, I thought yeah, I was in the ballpark. It's a huge compliment. <laughs> yeah, it's a huge compliment, but it, it, it was quite a discovery to, to hear her because as I said, I didn't, I didn't hear her until, till later on in my own career. Um, I didn't know her music. Well, it's just that, you know, British American thing that sometimes, it, you, it takes a minute to find stuff if it's not come across. Absolutely. And real quick, you talked about Steve Osborne. Uh, yeah. I, I noticed that Andy Green and Martin Tarif are also accredited yeah. as producers. Did they produce this track or was this uh, track Steve? This was Steve Osborne. So Andy, the, the, the whole, it was so interesting because I was very green behind the ears in terms of this process. And, and I had a, uh, it was very, very difficult working with my record label because they seemed to think that it would be um, helpful for them to just deal with shit and not tell me what they were doing. And so they, I, I didn't even, I wasn't even told who was mixing the record. I didn't know where the masters had gone. It mm -hmm. was really discombobulating and, and actually very challenging for me at the time because I, I, I'd spent 10 years trying to be an independent musician. I didn't really want to sign a record deal. Um, and not to say that I'm, I'm sorry that I did because it was, it was a very successful record, but it was definitely tough. Mm -hmm. Uh, the type of musician I am was never gonna sit particularly easy with the, with the record business, mm -hmm. you know? So I remember with that song, it was just Steve, myself and a drummer, I believe. I, I'm trying to jog my memory because I know that Andy, Andy did some production on other side of the world I don't know if it says in the credits or not. I can't remember off the top of my head. Well, I'm, gonna, I'm definitely going to jog your memory on, on some things here. So. Yeah. The, the really cool thing was that I played, the, I played the song for my label boss and then the talent scouts for Jules Holland were coming around to the rehearsal because they'd heard about you know, the record coming out. And, and my label boss told me to play them Black Horse, which wasn't on the record. And I was thinking, you know, I've got a single for the next album already. And he said, play them that one. And I was like, but it's not on the album. He said, trust me, just play them that one. And I did. And then when I got the call to do the show, because Nas the rapper pulled out at the last minute, you know, not the most obvious replacement, uh, uh, an unknown singer, folk singer from Scotland. I, again, my label boss said, play that song. And I just thought it was crazy because we didn't have a recording of it. And so I went ahead and played it. And of course it just went nuts. And we had to rush release the record with a recording of it. So the first 10,000 copies of Eye to the Telescope have the audio from the TV show on it. We're going to jump into this song right now, KT. It's two minutes and 51 seconds. The intro, uh, it's cool. It's just you saying two, three, four. There's a cool slap echo on the vocal here. There's a single clap on two. 
and there's two claps when you say four. It's a four-bar intro, and there's kind of the signature hook of the song is this woo-hoo vocal that happens four times. Uh, one vocal's panned off to the left, and the higher harmony of that is panned off right. Two, three, I'm hearing what I think is kick drum here, acoustic guitar, pretty much up the middle, a little panned left. And is that a tambourine running through this song or is it a triangle or something? I can't really tell. I'm trying to think. It's hard to remember exactly what we did. We were, I think, trying to emulate the vibe of the loop pedal because that was what people were loving so much about the song. So we may have, I know when suddenly I see another song, we looped a cajon on that track to give it that rhythm. So I think what we definitely did was we looped some drum hardware percussion. Mm -hmm. So you can hear that. Yes. And I think that's what you're talking about. That is that is just drumsticks on the rims. Right. Okay. It's actually not just the rims. It's actually on the on the drum stands. So the drummer was basically playing everything but the drums on a drum kit, the rims, the stands. The... Yeah, and the stands are the the high notes that I'm hearing that almost yeah. sound like a tambourine with the delay or whatever's yeah. on them. That's yeah. awesome. That is cool. Yeah, so it was it was basically playing drum stands. <laughs> that is great. I love stuff like that. I love when it's like, yeah. yeah, we tried a tambourine. We just couldn't get the vibe. And all of a sudden, my drummer started beating on the drum stand. And voila, we have, yeah. we have, we have the basis for our track. I think the rule of thumb to making roar kind of uh, realer and more unique sounding stuff is to limit what you can use and get creative with it rather than just adding and adding and adding and this plugin and that plugin and this piece of gear and this instrument, like keep it, keep it cheap and look around the room for something you can hit with a stick. Well, my heart knows me better than I know myself, so I'm going to let it do all the talking. Woohoo, woohoo. I came across a place in the middle of nowhere with a big black horse and a cherry tree. Woohoo, woohoo. I felt a little fear upon my back. I said, don't look back, just keep on walking. Woohoo, woohoo. <laughs> well, the big black horse said, look this way. He said, hey, lady, will you marry me? And you get those woohoos one last time before chorus one. What's happening here? So it's partly kind of hilarious because part of me wants to say I have no fucking idea what this song is about. <laughs> it's just, it was a complete exercise in automatic writing. So I, because I was writing the song, learning how to use the pedal, I was literally thinking to myself, is there a way of singing a song that feels like a blues number that I can put some backing vocals in that melodically 
I can have running all the way through, but I can still change chords. That's the hard thing about putting melodic stuff in a loop pedal. You're very limited um, with what chord changes you can make because yes. the, the notes aren't going to match, right? Mm -hmm. So the good thing about blues is that you usually have three chords. <laughs> so right. it's a little bit easier. This song is very linear, but not in a bad way. It has to yeah. be because of, of what you're speaking of. The yeah, so the, the interest in this song really comes from the stop start of the music itself and going in and out of percussive, you know, acapella percussive moments and then going into melodic chord changes. And um, so the lyrics were really, you know, that classic Robert Johnson blues man, devil at the crossroads. And this song was pretty much written about signing my record deal because you would have thought I would have been over the moon. And I have to say, I remember feeling really depressed <laughs> about having to sign a record deal that that was finally what I, it, it felt like giving in to the man. You know, mm -hmm. I would tried to keep it. I, I'd, I'd come out of a very kind of anarchic punk folk scene in Fife, where I grew up in Scotland, where they were very anti record industry and doing it themselves and busking on the street. And, um, and I loved that culture of, of, of freedom and really not having any other cooks in the kitchen, but yourself, you know? So I was extremely apprehensive whilst also excited about signing a record deal, but it really, I felt very torn about signing my name on that line and taking the money and uh, because I knew I knew that you pay you pay again and again after taking that money so so the record man saying hey lady will you marry me will you be part of so, this so let's say that the record the record label is the black horse and the <laughs> and the and the way of absolute freedom was the cherry tree that's cool and in the song I say no but actually in reality I said yes <laughs> Hey, don't go anywhere. We got lots more with KT after a few words from our sponsors. Looking to elevate your music career? DistroKid is a digital music distribution service that enables musicians to distribute their music to online stores and streaming platforms such as Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Tidal, and many more. DistroKid collects earnings and payments, sending them to you, the artist. With DistroKid, artists unlock a world of possibilities. From easily paying collaborators with splits to securing your music with DistroLock, DistroKid covers all bases. Plus, you can promote your releases with HyperFollow and create eye-catching visuals with a Spotify Canvas generator, all for free. But that's not all. Introducing the DistroKid app, now available on iOS and Android. Artists can manage their releases, view streaming stats, and withdraw earnings, all from the palm of their hand. And for those looking to perfect their sound, check out Mixia. With its simple interface and customizable mastering options, artists can make their music sound polished and professional within minutes. And don't forget about Instant Share, DistroKid's newest feature. Share large files securely with collaborators, producers, and more, ensuring your music streams at the highest quality. Ready to take your music to the next level? Download the DistroKid app and explore their suite of tools today. Plus, listeners can enjoy 30% off their first year by visiting distrokid.com slash VIP slash Demakes. That's distrokid.com slash VIP 
slash demix. Do you like to laugh, geek out on music, and learn all about that band or artist who had that one song back in the day, but then seemed to fall off the face of the earth? If so, you need to subscribe to One Hit Thunder. Together with an array of interesting and hilarious guests, we do a weekly dive into one-hit wonders like Eiffel 65's Blue, Crayshon's Gucci Gucci, EMF's Unbelievable, Delamitri's Roll to Me, Los Del Rio's Macarena, Musical Youth's Past the Duchy, and even Patrick Swayze's She's Like the Wind. So are you subscribed to One Hit Thunder or what? As Desiree would say, you gotta be. And as K7 would encourage, you gotta come baby come and join in on the fun of the One Hit Thunder podcast. And now back to the show. Well, there's there's a lot going on here. You know, I I, I, I mentioned the the term linear earlier, and again, not in a bad way at all. But I love how the instrumentation you made mention a moment ago comes in and out here. So verse one yeah. here, the guitars go away. It's just that what I'm calling the tambourine, but it's that high uh, high stick on the metal stand. There's the kick drum here, and then there's now a hi-hat panned off to the right. There's no acoustics for the first two lines. When the woo-hoos come in halfway through, the acoustics come back in, and those woo-hoos are also harmonized just like the intro, pan left and pan right. The second half of this verse, uh, the tambourine, triangle, stick noise, <laughs> the hi-hat is panned off right. The acoustics come in uh, on cherry tree, and the woo-hoos are harmonized i love the back half of verse one here it's the same music pattern but it almost sounds panned off left and kt you're gonna have to help me out here i can't tell if these are like electronic drum fills panned off or it's you kind of scraping the pick across the strings Oh yeah, there was there was a hundred percent zero electronic about this song. Um, so when I play with the loop pedal, I use my damp damp and strings as percussion. So the first thing I do is I beat the 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 drum the the guitar like a drum to get the beat, and then to get that percussive stuff, I dampen all the strings with my left hand and just use the pick to get a percussive scraping sound. So you get that. It's awesome. And you can really hear it later in the song. This is also a, a, a kind of more upbeat version of Woke Up This Morning, right? Woke Up This Morning, there's no music. There's music in between. <laughs> it is a lot like So it's a, it's, you know, it's a blues trick right. of blues writing that you have this riff and then you have some lyrics without the music and then you have the riff. I love the palm muting thing you're doing there with the percussiveness because, again, it really does sound like those 80s electronic drums panned off left. I absolutely love that. I also like here on the woo-hoo on the second half, there's one hi-hat hit panned off left. It's the only time in the song that that happens. Mm. Black horse on a cherry tree. Just those little flourishes are so cool to me. I'm a big fan of not repeating everything. Yeah. And so there's definitely some songs too with backing vocals where I don't use the same arrangement in verse two as I do as, as verse one. And I just, I love, um, I love keeping it a bit unexpected and having these, having these moments and allowing musicians to be a bit more creative than 
stuck in a in a in an absolutely repeating pattern. And while we didn't use electronics, we did play around with effects on this song. So you, as you said, you hear that that slap back delay uh, on the vocal as I count in, and then there's some really cool. Um, delay stuff in the middle eight which we'll get to but um we definitely played around a little bit with some stuff on the drums too yeah no it, it's great and i like the line here well the big black horse that looked this way he said hey lady will you marry me it sounds right there that those vocals get double tracked yeah that's very possible uh, being a beck fan it's always been a favorite trick of mine because that's completely signature beck is always doubling his vocals and some people some people really don't like it um, some people find that it um, it can take away intimacy a little bit, you know, when you're hearing uh, uh, it sounds a little, it makes it sound slightly processed, the voice. But I just think for me, it it links the music to um, a lot of the stuff that I love. You know, Elliot Smith did it a lot as well, the double vocal, and um, there's a vibe to it. It's quite an indie. Uh, trick. Oh no, the way the way you use it here is is brilliant. I love it. Chorus one comes in at only forty eight seconds. You're already the chorus one. I remember, yeah, I remember being told the record company going, "Yeah, you want to get to the chorus by one minute." (laughs) Well, honestly, there was so much going on up to this point that it felt like it would have been longer. I was surprised it was only forty eight. But I said no. But I said, no, 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 no. I said, no, no, you're not the one for me. No, 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 no. I said, no, no, you're not the one for me. The snare drum comes in here uh, on this with a full drum beat. The guitars sound a bit more full here, KT. Maybe like they were uh, panned a little more in the middle. The bass comes in here too, but yeah. nothing too fancy. Kind of just playing the root notes and, and kind of locking it down. Yeah, well, I opened up the strumming here. So the, yes. the strumming in the verse is very, very percussive. And then at this t- at this point, it goes into much o- more open strumming. So you get a lot more melodic guitar right. rather than percussive guitar. And um, I would imagine that we probably doubled the guitars and just did a double track of the acoustics just to fatten it up a little bit. Because the thing about this track was we really didn't want to make it bass guitar heavy because we just felt that that adding a lot of bass was going to just make it sound heavier and drag it down a little bit. And so we really tried to use bass as sparingly as possible. And also because my rhythm section, I've always considered my rhythm section, usually it's bass and drums, but I feel like my rhythm section is actually bass, uh, drums and acoustic guitar. For this track, it definitely is. I almost didn't know if there, I listened to this chorus so many times, like, is there bass there? It almost sounds like it could be a percussive overtone. We tried to make it as subtle as possible. So I'm glad that I'm glad that we achieved that. And the other thing that that happens with bass is if your ear hears bass, it then misses it once it's gone. And, and it can, so I do a lot of two piece shows sometimes, me and a drummer, I'll do a, two, a white stripe style um, two piece show. And of course there's no, but we sometimes trigger some bass part, like low sub synth parts. But it's so interesting that if, if you don't introduce bass, the ear 
kind of does that thing that the eyes do, which it fills the space without needing to hear all of that stuff. You know, it's, it's amazing because a, a song that hugely influenced me, which I love, is uh, Blister in the Sun by the Violent Femmes. Oh, yeah. So I heard that um, when I was over doing my senior year of high school in America, and I was introduced to Blister in the Sun. And another song that's similar to that is, um, is a Cure song. Um, I think it might be Friday, I'm in love, something like that. But it's two songs that you, th you remember being big, fat, full songs. And then you go back and listen to it and Blister in the Sun hardly has a kick drum. I don't even know if it has a kick drum, <laughs> but it doesn't. I mean, it's got almost no bait. It's like there's no bottom end. Same with the, the, the Cure track, I remember going back and whoa, this is like frequency wise, this is actually a very limited, narrow sounding song, but your body feels the song so much that you kind of fill in the gaps. So that's what we wanted to do with, with Black Horse really was, was leave space and, and kind of reset your ears so you're not missing a big fat bass, which ends up filling up all the space. That's a really interesting take. Well, you just mentioned uh, a little bit back about how uh, you were saying, no, 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 you're not the one for me. And that's basically what the chorus is saying here. The last line you sing just by yourself, no band, the band yeah. stops. You're not the one for me. The vocals alone there. And then who, woo, who uh, takes us right back into a two bar reintro. Acoustic guitar is doing some more single note thing here, along with the kick drums and the, uh, uh, the stick on the stand, we'll call it, before we get right into verse two. Stand percussion, we'll stand, call it. Stand percussion. So I sent it to a place in the middle of nowhere with a big black horse and a cherry tree. Ooh -hoo. Ooh -hoo. Now I won't come back because it's all so happy and now I got a hold of the world to see. Ooh -hoo. Ooh -hoo. And, and my heart had a problem in the early hours, so I stopped it dead for a beat or two. Woohoo, woohoo. But I cut some cord and I shouldn't have done it. And it won't forgive me after all these years. Woohoo, woohoo. So I sent her to a place in the middle of nowhere with a big black horse and a cherry tree. Woohoo, woohoo. Now it won't come back because it's oh so happy. And now I've got a hole for the world to see. Woohoo, woohoo. I mean, it's when I listen to it now, it's, there's a lot of deep, profound stuff around those lyrics that's a little bit difficult to describe. But the heart hit a problem thing was I had a heart murmur when I was born. And I know this because I was adopted. And so it said on my adoption certificate that I had this heart murmur. And this whole verse is sort of a, a kind of, as I said, slightly difficult to pin down feeling of being cut from a past I knew nothing about. 
and then sort of sent into this different life. I was adopted when I was like 18 days old. That's always played a pretty big part in my makeup, you know? And I'm not totally sure what the cut some cord thing is about. It's, I guess, to do with that period of time of signing the deal and maybe feeling like I wasn't completely, truly following my true heart. And I think I felt very torn, as I said, and uh, discombobulated about being in this situation where I was kind of feeling like I was partly working for someone, which I was desperately trying to avoid. And so I think it was just conflict of thinking, you know, is my heart going to forgive me for for betraying her on this one? I love that you brought that up because so many times a, a songwriter will be writing a song about a particular thing, but things in their life, be it from the past when they were adopted at 18 days old to any type of strife or happiness can somehow bleed into the song, uh, you mm. know, and you're like, how, where did that come from? You know, and that, that, that's, that's really cool. You never, you never know when those things are going to interject. Yeah. And it's funny because, you know, talking about it 15 years, 18 years later, it's like the, the, the lyrics make you have a visceral reaction and feeling to them, which, sometimes it's different from when you first wrote them. I always think that songs are kind of have a very savant like nature. They're total fortune tellers where you think you're writing about something at the time. And then you realize later on in your life that it was actually a much, much deeper part of your unconscious. That was, you know, your, your creative subconscious that was speaking. And you know that it was about more than that because it makes you feel something deeper when you remember it. Yeah. Well, there's a lot going on here in verse two. The first two lines, that double vocal comes back. It's subtle, but it's there. After you say, so I stopped it dead for a beat or two. There's this two stick rim shot that happens there. So stopped it dead for a beat or two. Ooh. Yeah. It's so cool too. Because yeah. My hardcore fans totally pick up on that. And so whenever I do that stop, I can see who the hardcore fans are because they do a double clap. Uh-huh. It's so cool. <laughs> it's a really cool moment in the show. I'm like, who's going to do it? Who's going to do it? I always talk about this on the show, those little hooks within songs yeah. that kind of go by and you don't think of them as hooks. That's a huge hook when you look out and the audience yeah. is clapping. It's so cool. The beat or two. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Uh, On all these years, your vocal goes up an octave there. It really hits this great rasp in your voice. Yeah, I've always had this thing where I don't like verses to exactly repeat. Yes. So I think you'll find throughout all my songwriting that melodically, you know, I like to make sure that the strongest melody beds in the first time round, but then I really like to play with the expectation the second time around. It's it's really neat. Well, the back half of verse two, uh, you get those percussive guitar panned off left. What I what I thought was uh, '80s electronic drum fills, which which is it isn't, which is really neat. But on the woohoo here, the first time it happens, halfway through, a snare drum comes in. It's very odd placement, but it's super cool. Come back because it's so happy and now I got a whole world to see. Yeah. Ooh. And it's a no, no. 
Was that an accident or how'd that come about? No, Steve, Steve's really cool in the way that he builds. And so he's not afraid to be unconventional in the way that he'll build a track towards the chorus. I listened to that part over and over again. I'm going, it, it almost sounded, and I hate using this word, it almost sounded like a mistake or wrong. I'm like, what is this? Yeah. And, and the more I listen to him, I'm like, oh, that's just where they placed it. It's really neat. It might, it might have been. I mean, it might have just been, it might have been a take. And we yeah. just liked it. <laughs> it's awesome. Well, on the line, now it won't come back because it's oh so happy. A single electric guitar comes in doing a cool single note lick, kind of panned off left. And on the line, the world to see, you go up an octave again there. I love it. Yeah, again, it's just trying to keep building towards that second chorus and, and, and ramping the energy up to that, that second chorus coming in. Second chorus uh, comes in. It's the same lyric as chorus one, except it starts off by saying, and it said, instead of, but I said. On the last line, you're not the one for me. The band stops. It's just the vocal. And then, who, woo, who. We go into a four bar re intro. Halfway through, you say, not the one for me, yeah. And it's like a filtered vocal, slightly off left. It's a cool, again, another feature in the song that only happens that one time, but it's a great little flourish. Uh, then it's followed by uh, another who, woo, who. The guitars are doing that single note thing again. And I wrote in my notes, this part just feels good. <laughs> yeah. Well, another thing that we did with that first record was we were extremely lean sparing and discerning about what went on a song so if it wasn't absolutely necessary it was in the garbage so there is no fat basically uh, on that record it's so it's so simple in terms of its arrangements because what we really wanted was for when you listen to this album to be able to imagine a person playing that thing, that there isn't a sound coming from somewhere, you know, ethereal where you don't know what it's on or who's playing it. It's just like, oh, the drummer's playing that. Oh, the guitarist is playing that. And oh, there's someone clapping in the corner. We wanted to make you feel like you were in the kitchen while we're playing this song. I just got goosebumps. You took the words out. Of, you didn't know you took the words out of my mouth because that's why it translates so well when you do it just by yourself. Because even though this is full band, it still has that personal thing to it that when you yeah. go, it's just as magical as the recording. You can't get that with a lot of songs. They just you don't they yeah, don't translate right. they don't translate the singer songwriter on, on a bar stool somewhere. You know, I'm a huge Carol King fan. And I, I consider Tapestry, you know, my my songwriting Bible. Mm -hmm. And I think that she does that so beautifully on that record where you're hearing humans you're not hearing recordings you're hearing yes. you know you're hearing people expressing and i think that's that's what we 
that's what we were inspired by. Oh yeah, some of those '60s um, Motown records and things—they were yeah. just those those happy mistakes. They're in the studio, and you know, someone's after a take, they say, "I don't know, I could have played that better." And the producer's going, "Uh-uh, no, yeah. there's there's something magic that happened on that take. We're we're not we're not doing that again." You know, and that's yeah, exactly. It's so cool. Well, the middle eight here, uh, which uh, we also call the bridge. I said, no, 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 you're not the one for me, woo-hoo, no, 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 woo-hoo, no, 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 woo-hoo, no, no, you're not the one for me. So lyrically- I mean, interesting stuff, huh? Well, no, you know, (laughs) I I was just going to say, sometimes you don't need more information. It's interesting, the bridge isn't that uh, different than what's going on in the chorus, but, but it works brilliantly here where you went with it. There's just also some cool looping aspects where we've got some like do 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 and then a little a little harmony to that going on as well and so it's really just a it's really just a breather sometimes a bridge is just a break right from lyrics and you know slightly more complex arrangement to just reset you to enjoy the final chorus and um and really in a song like this the bridge is there to provide, I think, some just great rhythmic energy where it's kind of like a breakdown dance party, take your shoes off and then, you know, get back into singing once the chorus comes in. So it's really just a kind of a little percussive journey into into breakdown before the chorus comes in again. Well, this part's great. And I got some stuff I want to talk about. The woos here. It's interesting. They're panned off left, and it's just the melody. There's no harmony here. Was that discussed in the studio, and why wasn't there a harmony put on those? Yeah, it's about, you know, a breakdown in a song is about stripping back. So it's about taking uh, whatever you can out to thin the track out to the kind of the more um, driving percussive elements. So a lot of songs that you'll hear that have breakdowns do that. It's just like, what's the bit of this song that makes you dance the most? And, and then you strip it back and then you can, you know, you're really, you're basically giving yourself space to slam back in to finish the song. Well, that kick drum still here, that stick percussion, acoustic guitar, slightly pan left. Oh, and I should say as well, we did record the bass drum with a beater, not with a kick pedal. So we used a really big fur beater. Which makes complete sense because I almost thought that your palm was hitting an acoustic guitar and you delayed that or reverb that and looped it. It almost sounds like that. Yeah, it was a big bass drum. It was a bigger than normal bass drum skin. And so it sounds kind of like a, you know, a marching band bass drum yeah no it's it, it's cool and then that muted strumming that percussive thing is is really evident here i think i mentioned that earlier it doesn't sound like those electronic drums here at all you can really tell what it is and maybe when it was mixed maybe some of that delay was pulled off here so it was a little more immediate yeah i'm sure yeah, yeah. you would definitely want to go drier at this point yeah yeah and I, I think that's great and then last thing here one of the coolest parts is this high guitar uh delay 
delay. It's like swirling between the left and right speakers. I, the only way I can describe it, it kind of sounds like seagulls. Now, you're not the one for me. <laughs> I can't remember that, so I'll have to go back and listen. But yeah. I know that, like, Steve and I were both big fans of, um, like, rotor cabinet. Oh, delays. yeah. So I wonder, I wonder if we did something like that on it. It's really, it's really awesome. And then the, the big surprise was the last chorus of this song, which really, it's almost like a verse mixed with a chorus because you're still yeah. you're still getting those no, no, no's in there from chorus one and chorus two, but they're tucked behind the lead vocal. I will say that right right before we go into that is one of my favorite musical moments I've ever recorded. And that, that is the open hi-hat break going back into the last chorus, which goes... Yes. And is that with the hand claps? Yeah, you're not the one for... And it's actually like a real disco style break. And it's not what you would expect. You would expect like a... Yeah. And it's this this pure 70s disco hat break going back into the chorus and i love when i'm playing with the drummer when we play that break back into the last chorus it's awesome it it is and and there's there's some hand claps that happen there in that part you're talking about and then we get here to like i said it's it's like a verse mixed with a chorus i love how they interweave and i'm going to read these lyrics and have you have you set them up a big black horse and a cherry tree I can't quite get there because my heart's forsaken me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Woohoo. Big black horse and a cherry tree. I can't quite get there because my heart's forsaken me. There's another woohoo on that last line. The band stops on Hearts Forsaken Me. And it sounds like here, KT, that low notes of a B3 organ panned off to the right come in doing this cool new me- little melody. Yeah, that's possible. I would again. I would have to listen to it. But that that um, <laughs> it's, and it's is that awesome. the first time that happens? That's the first time it happens. The only time I hear it. That's cool. Yeah, well, I will definitely go back and check that out. It is really cool. We were, we were definitely just reaching around the corners of the studio for whatever was available. So um, I think you know. It's the other thing is that Steve and I have, have really enjoyed drama in songs and so you know you don't get a more dramatic ending than a dead stop with the vocal left on its own that's like classic yes drama song stop i'll tell you what else i like about that is the vocal alone here uh the band stops on the word hearts and you say forsaken me alone that's how the song ends it's really personal but it's not a super dry vocal there's still like this slap echo on it slightly that gives it like it's very vibey it's great yeah, well, it's that Lennon, you know, signature Lennon yeah. hard slapback reverb, which A, makes you sound really cool, <laughs> um, but B, you know, can't help but give a retro vibe to what you're doing. And, um, and I think that it just links it stylistically to that older blues and rock uh, material from the 60s and earlier 
Um, but you know, all the old guys, I mean, Howling Wolf and Muddy Waters and all those amazing guys, you always used that great hard slapback. Yeah, it's very cool. Well, th- this song was a, a, a ton of fun to break down. And before we break, is there anything you'd like to leave the listeners with? You know, you've since Eye to the Telescope, you've had six albums after that, seven albums total, uh, the most recent being 2022's Nut. So anything else you, you got going on you'd like to leave us with before we break? I mean, I just think that it's so uh, it, it's so great to give thanks to this song that kind of came out of a weird birth birthing process uh, in a very unexpected way. Because I think, you know, no matter what I write from here on out for the rest of my life, this song is just going to remain my signature. It's like, you know, this is how I sign my name sonically. <laughs> is this song, and it's um, and I'm just so. You know, I'm so proud of it when I walk through CVS and it's and it's playing on the sound system because not only am I, you know, delighted that it's still getting played and people still enjoy it, but it sounds so different from everything else that's on their sound system. And it's and it's 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 playing us the blues. And I just think any song that kind of reminds us of how rich that history is and and what a soulful corner of the music world it is and what an important corner of the music world it is. Uh, I think it's just really good for us to always hear that, those rhythms and those influences um, coming through a song. That's awesome. Well, that, that's very refreshing to hear. A lot of artists, uh, you know, they, they will listen to my new stuff and they, they don't appreciate where <laughs> they came from. It's like you you, yeah. you you appreciate that this song is still, as you say, played in CVS and it's your signature song. Yeah. And, and I still love playing it too. I, good, love, you should. I really enjoy playing it. And because I use the loop pedal, it's actually still challenging because I have to get it right every time I play it. <laughs> and, and for the listeners out there, I don't play with the loop pedal because it's too hard. So Katie- It's Katie, really difficult. Yes, yes. There was, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, there was a lady after a show one time and she said, Katie, I got a bone to pick with you. I said, what is it? I'm so sorry. And she said, my (laughs) husband bought one of those loopers and it sounds like shit. I said, I'm really sorry, lady. I don't think it's the loop pedal. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think it's your husband. (laughs) And on that, what else could we possibly say? I think think we're going to end there. Thank you so much for sitting in today. Pleasure. It was great fun. I'm going to go back and listen to it again now. Yeah, you got to go listen to that B3 at the end. I I swear it's there. I swear I'm not hearing things. That song you're just hearing is Private Eyes, taken from KT's album Nut, which is an incredible record. I hope you all enjoyed that conversation, but don't go anywhere. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors, but we'll be right back with lots more Krista Makes a Podcast. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. 
Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. As we near the end of the show, here's a band you might not know. Welcome to this week's Band You Might Not Know. If you'd like your band to be considered for Krista Makes a Podcast, all you have to do is email your best song via MP3 only and a short bio to band you might not know at gmail.com. This week's featured artist is Battleviews, a New Jersey indie folk group consisting of Ryan and Natalie Rachelson, who will be releasing their first album very soon. Here's a snippet of the first single, Home. and Chris. Chris, as usual, I loved that episode. I thought that was awesome. What's funny about this song, I guarantee there were a decent amount of listeners who were like, what song is that? And the second they heard it, the second they heard, woo, they were like, oh, that song. This song has lived on way past when it was first released. You still hear this song today. KT referenced it to us that you know, she still appreciates hearing it in a CVS now. <laughs> this this song lives on. It's incredible. Yeah, when when this thing popped in the UK, Less Than Jake was was over there a lot during this time period. And it, this song was everywhere. It was in malls and taxis, at venues, at, at uh, bars, restaurants. It was it was it was literally everywhere. This song really exhibits the power of the loop pedal. Is this the first loop pedal centric song that we've talked about on this show? I'm trying. I think so. I know we've discussed discussed looping and, and things, but I don't know if we, we talked uh, specifically about a loop pedal. But yeah, I, I we talked about it at the end, uh, KT and I, about how I think that's why this song translates so well when she goes just by herself and she can get those sounds pretty close to what happened you know and like i said go watch for the listeners go watch her live videos of this it is awesome it's so cool how she's going back and forth that's why i was joking with her about do you multitask outside of music (laughs) yeah right (laughs) hey i mean go watch the jules holland performance it's on youtube that's what was her big break is what she said luckily nas dropped off that episode i love nas and she told us after we were done recording i have to mention this that when she was on Jules Holland, the other people that were with her were Anita Baker, Jackson Brown, and The Cure, which is what a lineup. That show is incredible. I showed her after. I have a DVD of all Bjork's performances on Jules Holland. That would be like the ultimate, I mean, especially in the UK, the ultimate I don't know, place to play music, you know, to get your music out to the world. And you want to talk about vulnerable. And when you watch her, you can see that she, because this Jules Holland is like, you know, the, the, the biggest shows that we have here in the States, the, the nighttime shows. It's as, it's as big as you could have gotten back then in, in the UK. And you can tell she's scared. I can just see her. And she's like, this is my moment. I better do, I better shine. And she killed it. She killed it. She did kill it. And she mentioned how for a lot of people, it was the first time they saw someone playing with the loop pedal. And 
I, I still remember one my friend Greg was one of the first people I knew who's really good with the loop pedal. And it's amazing because one person can sound like an entire band, uh-huh. you know, yeah. but it's a, there's a real art to it. She mentioned how she inspired so many people to buy loop pedals. And if you're not good with it or you're just not good in general, that loop pedal isn't going to magically make you good. Like you have to be. It is a true art to be able to create music with that pedal. Yeah, I, I have one, and I've messed with it, and I can do a couple things here or there, but no, it's not not my forte, and, and what she does with it is, is absolutely fantastic. I love that she talked about uh, producer Steve Osborne and how you know he wanted to kind of keep it basic which goes back to the blues you know on paper this doesn't really strike you as like oh this is a blues song but it's rooted in that and it's just rooted in that realism and you know there there's not a, a ton of stuff going on in this song production wise but yet there is i know that sounds c- uh, c- contradictive but it it's i just love the, i just love the production of what they did here yeah it sounds perfect it sounds like you're in the room with her playing it like you said that's why it has stood the test of time that's that's why it's timeless you know it doesn't sound you know overproduced or anything or sound like of a time if this song came out right now be a hit right now right i mean what is there to stop it from being it will always sound good i thought it was really cool when she got into talking about her lyrics she talked about how there's these parts of your subconscious that come out in your lyric writing that sometimes you don't realize until after it could be years after and you could be like Oh, I was writing about this and I didn't even realize it at the time. Yeah, and, and she was just so so honest about a lot of things. I I love her enthusiasm, the smile on her face when she was talking about how almost 20 years later how much this song means to her, how she recognizes that it's her signature song. We've had people on the show, Chris, and how many times have we seen it out there and uh, interview land with artists that denounce their hit? Oh, I was just, a, <laughs> I, I hate that song. I, I don't, or, or I'm going to be the artist right now and I'm not going to play it at the, at the big show. And it's like, dude, that's your signature song, you know, and they turn their back on it and, and she's embraced it. It would be kind of hard not to embrace this <laughs> this one. It's a really good song. Once again, it sounds timeless. Like even this far into her career at this point, I'm sure she'd still be psyched if she wrote this song. Whereas, I don't know, I have songs from early in my music career where people like them and I understand what they like about them. And I'm kind of like, ah, uh, you know, the our presentation on that song or just our musical proficiency on that song or the recording of it sounds dated but i think it probably helps when you have something that sounds this awesome this many years later absolutely and i I love the fact that she just got signed to to a major record deal and here's a song that she was writing about that experience and how she just you know it, it 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 felt right in one sense but it felt so wrong in another sense she was conflicted about it and it bled into the lyrics with those other life influences she talked about how she was adopted at 18 days old and subconsciously how a couple of those lyrics got into this song so really cool how this thing got put together yeah for sure i also love that she talked about not having a lot of musical influence from her parents you know yeah. and i i kind of related to that a little bit my parents listened to some music but they weren't like big music heads but i do love that she dropped the vangelis influence the chariots <laughs> of fire guy yes. you know uh by the way r.i.p he passed away i think it was in 2022 or 2021 passed away 
in recent years. But uh, I think that was a pretty cool influence because she talked about how like his use of synths was inspirational, which, yeah. And I love that she talked about those songs, which, hey, I'm a bass player. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I love talking about this, but it, it is true. Songs like Blister in the Sun, uh, where there isn't that low end and you don't even notice that it's not there. If it's not introduced, it sounds full even without so much of the bass. Yeah, for sure. It's it's that that stripped down thing where if, if it's there, you, you know, you're going to you're going to notice it. It might take over the other parts of the song. But if it's not there and you don't miss it, you don't miss it. It's just it's just not there. And it's something we really haven't talked about too much on the show. But I'll tell you something we have talked about a lot on the show, Chris. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, but there is something that you shouldn't miss. <laughs> <laughs> what have we yes. talked? What have we talked about uh, umpteen times? Yeah, I know. I know that people are probably <laughs> sick of us talking about it, but. If you're not a member of our supporting cast, which you can sign up for at ChrisDemakes.com, uh, I don't know. What are you waiting for? You get a bonus episode of our After Party podcast every week, plus a giant back catalog of the episodes. It's a whole entire podcast that we do. Do you know we have a second podcast, Chris? It's called The After Party. And uh, for a few bucks a month, you can support the podcast and get a lot of bonus episodes. So ChrisDemakes.com. That's where you can go if you want to be part of the after party. That's right. And we'd love to have you. We'd also love to have you in our Facebook group, the Krista Makes a Podcast Facebook group with over 4,500 members. That's a lot of people. All active members. Great discussions in there. It's a lot of fun. And I'm still writing those custom songs and jingles for you or that special someone or for your business or whatever you have in mind. Hit me up for info at ChrisDemakes at gmail.com. I'd love to write a song for you or that special someone. And I want to thank this week's guest, KT Tunstall, for sitting in with us. And we'll see you next week. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living, and every week I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com, and I'll see you there.